It's Pi Day 314, meaning there'll be a lot of school kids counting digits in the classroom today and a lot of other people counting calories with the extra desserts they'll be eating. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. The big story yesterday, let's get to it. Abortion rights advocates can finally take a concrete step to making sure abortion remains legal in Ohio. Lisa, what is that step? The Ohio Ballot Board voted yesterday and uh, unanimously that the proposed amendment language for the abortion constitution bill has one subject, which is in accordance with Ohio law. It can only be a single subject. So now that means the signature gathering can begin. So what they need is 412, 591 names from registered voters from half of Ohio counties. So that would be 44 counties. They have until July 5th to collect these signatures. And so this uh, ballot language or the ballot amendment is officially titled Right to Reproductive Freedom with Protections for Health and Safety. It allows individuals to decide on abortions, but also birth control, fertility treatment, miscarriage care, and so forth. Uh, But abortion would still be prohibited after viability, which would be between 21 and 24 weeks. Dr. Amy Burkett, who's an Akron OBGYN with Ohio Physicians for Reproductive Rights, says they're all already training volunteers to gather signatures, and they hope to get at least 700,000 signatures because, as you know, when they turn in signatures, some often get rejected. So uh, ballot board members Frank LaRose and Toledo Senator Teresa Gavarone said they were just voting on the merits, which is what they're supposed to do. But uh, Gavarone says she's horrified that the right to kill babies will be enshrined in the Constitution of Ohio. If everybody remembers back to when the Supreme Court tossed out Roe v. Wade and and the strength of feeling a lot of people had, a lot of women had, this is the moment they could actually take a step. And I, I was wondering this morning whether the people gathering the signatures will have events to, because people might want to go. I, I want to get my name on the petition or if they would avoid that because the protesters might show up, the anti-abortion protesters, and turn it into the bedlam of the kind we saw in Wadsworth over the weekend in an LGBTQ gathering. So I, it'll be interesting to see what their strategy is. It, it will be. And I know the last time I signed a petition, it was like at the Geauga County Fair. So, you know, that's how I, I, and I don't remember what it was for, but so yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. And, you know, events like these are becoming very polarized and actually magnets for, for crazies. But I just I got think- an email. I just got an email from somebody just this minute saying, will you please publish a story showing all the places people can go to sign the petition? So I think there is a hunger. Go ahead, Layla. I think that's a terrific idea. I had actually been thinking for a while about that because I'm ready to sign. Tell me where to go. I will Mm -hmm. find you. I will sign your petition. But I totally understand this is such a, such a, a polarizing issue that you absolutely are going to have people coming out to protest those those events. But I think with the right kind of security, I think it would be a good, uh, you know, the, the result would be worth the, the difficulties they'd face. I suspect there are a lot of people to feel exactly like you do. Tell me where to go. Yeah. I'll be mm-hmm. there. I want this on the ballot. I, I don't want the the people in the legislature foisting their beliefs upon me. Most of Ohio wants this to be legal. Uh, But you do have to worry about it. I mean, 
think back to the HB6. Look at all the dastardly deeds those people did to try and stop that petition drive, even having violence break out in one case. And you do, if you're, if you're pushing for this, you don't want that. You don't want people mm-hmm. to be afraid to show up to sign the petition. Mm-hmm. And if you announce the locations, you may get that kind of caustic behavior that causes fear. In some regards, though, wouldn't that be safer if you do have security at an event like that? I feel like that would be more that would be safer for petition circulators than to go door to door, not knowing who is going to answer and what reaction they're going to have to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't I, it, the, I think the choice would be more like what Lisa said, which is about the fair. I think they could show up at places where people are. And say, hey, sign the petition, and people would come to sign, but because it's not announced, you wouldn't have the organized protest. I don't know. We want to do a story on it. I, I don't know if they'll want to share where they're doing it for fear of for the safety of the people getting the signatures. Isn't it sad that they have to think about that? This is yeah. an actual act of democracy. People taking into their own hands setting of laws, and they have to worry about violence. Well, and HB6 first came to mind, too, with all of the people they paid, you know, to confuse people. And then they they offered more money to the petition gatherers because well, a lot of time these people get paid to go out and get the petition signatures to, to quit their jobs. And you don't know if that's going to happen. All I can say is we could look at Dave Yost and Teresa Gavarone, uh, the anti-abortion Republicans who have voted the right way. Uh, following the Constitution to get this to where we are now. And they said, this is a legal question. We're following the law. Okay. We'll see how the signature gathering goes. There's not a lot of time, really, before the deadline. You are listening to Today in Ohio. What was the reaction over the weekend to our call out for action to make child care more accessible than it is now? Laura, this is a project you're overseeing in 2023. What did you hear? Yeah, I received more than a dozen thoughtful, positive responses from more men than I expected from a lot of grandparents bemoaning the state of childcare today and how hard it is to find, how expensive it is, and how we really need to do something. Some people thought we should use taxes from sports betting to create a public childcare system. Unfortunately, Rich Exner, our, our sports gambling and data guru, says that's only about $120 million a year. That would not be enough to create universal early childhood education. Uh, Others thought local school districts should be responsible for this from basically six months through, or sorry, six weeks through 18. Some people wanted to talk about after school care or non-traditional hours, which are even harder to find. If you're looking for a child care center outside of 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., good luck. Uh, Some talked about countries that handle it better. Child care administrators, I got, I think, three of those writing to me, talking about the difficulty of the business, the ratios that they follow, what could be improved. One woman wrote in pointing out that by law, puppies are not separated from their mothers until eight weeks old. And yet we tell people that, you know, kids can be in child care centers at six weeks. And, you know, a six week maternity leave isn't at all guaranteed in this country. And I really liked a dad who said he was conservative and that he was pushing Republicans to support child care because it would achieve a lot of the party's goals. I was surprised that you heard from people that operate daycares in that it's their business and radical changes could affect their business, good or bad, Mm -hmm. but they seem to feel strongly that the current state of affairs is not a good one. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have to think that if you're going to be in the childcare business, it's because you care about children. Obviously, there's a way to make money at it. There, there's also nonprofits. I want to point out that a lot of the childcare centers in Northeast Ohio are nonprofits. Some of them are run by churches. Some of them are traditional nonprofits. But they basically were saying, one guy said that that infant care in Ohio is among the worst in the country and that our ratios are terrible, which as a parent, I did not know when my when my 11 week old went to you know childcare for the very first time, I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. But um, I, I love one one person that wrote to you on subtext on your your test message service. They said Cleveland could put their name on the map as a family friendly city by investing in federal and state recovery funds and childcare solutions instead of building new community centers at golf courses. Invest <laughs> the money in our children, then broadcast through every social media platform. Come live in Cleveland for affordable, incredible housing, fantastic jobs, and top quality childcare. And I really do think there's an opportunity here that we could become a mecca for you know family friendly policies and get people to move here because of that. I think it's interesting that they brought up the slush funds. I know, I love that. It's like the slush funds are are the county council's dumbest move ever because every time they spend money now or need money, that's going to come up. So look, you've been reading a lot of material on this. You've looked at some of the models overseas and I know there's a lot of work to do, but what is the ideal right now in your mind? I think that we should look at something like Multnomah County did in Oregon, where they created a high income tax. It was a voted on by the people. It's 1.5% for family, for, for individuals that make, I believe, over $125,000. And that extra income tax goes to creating a universal system. And I don't know who runs it. That's a very good question. It, I mean, it makes sense if we've got the money that school districts could figure out how to administer that because they already serve every kid in their community starting at kindergarten age. I don't. I would not want to create more bureaucracy. And it, we can't talk about a state program. That obviously would never fly in our legislature. But I think there's something we can do as a pilot program in this county that really shows people, if you work together, how much better your community would be. And I, we've done projects in this in cleveland.com and the plain dealer about the importance of early childhood education for kids development for their brain development and how much better off you know for every dollar you spend in early childhood education you get a seven dollar return that's a, a pretty well accepted fact in the industry i'm not really talking about how good it is for kids <laughs> as, as good as it is i'm looking at this as an economic argument that businesses would be better off and and everyone would be better off if we all shared the burden of childcare because it is a huge, huge burden. About uh, $10,200 for Ohio infant care for a year. Cleveland is about $2,000 higher. And that was in 2021. It keeps growing up. It is just a lot for any family to bear on their own. Although I think you'd have a very hard sell on a 1.5% income tax in in a state where the taxes are already so high. But we'll see. Good stuff to come. Look for the stories to develop throughout this year. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, I kept this on the, the agenda, even though I know it's not the story we thought it would be. It's so vitally important that it's worth discussing, even mm-hmm. though there are holes in it. Does it look like the state of Ohio might come to the rescue of the family support specialists who are key to the success of Say Yes to Education? 
So, so yes, we ended up deciding to hold back on writing this story because the grant is, is not yet in hand, but we, we might have an update in print anyway this week. We'll see. But the latest on the family support specialist is that the Cuyahoga County Board of Control on Monday gave the county permission to apply for a $1.5 million grant from the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. If, if the county gets that grant, it will be enough money to keep the family support specialist program afloat through the fiscal year if we're also counting the $600,000 that County Executive Chris Ronane has pledged from the Health and Human Services levy. So for listeners who are just coming at this subject fresh, uh, Say Yes Cleveland is that program that offers college scholarships to Cleveland students who graduate after four years at a Cleveland high school. They have about $100 million or so in private donations set aside for those scholarships, but the backbone of Say Yes is this legion of family support specialists who are something like social workers. There, there's one in every school, and they help kids and their families meet their basic needs and get connected with resources in the community so that the student can focus on school instead of worrying about their family going hungry or having utilities shut off at their home or or getting evicted. So the Cleveland School District, the county and federal funding are supposed to split the cost of the Family Support Specialist Program, but the federal funding has fallen short of those expectations because of a, a glitch in, in the the policies surrounding it. And the county hasn't been reimbursed by those federal dollars the way they expected to. That's been a really sore spot for some county council members who have tossed the issue back at the school district in the city by basically saying, these are Cleveland schools, they should bear more of the responsibility, never mind that the well-being of kids and families is the county's responsibility and one of the core functions of the Health and Human Services Department, never mind that more than half of Cleveland students have had some interaction with the county's Department of Children and Family Services, and, and the family support specialist job is to prevent kids from becoming more entrenched in that system. But, you know, I digress. <laughs> well, they're, they're wholly undermined in their argument on this money because of what we talked about in a minute ago, the money they squandered on such funds. This is one yeah. point something million dollars and they squandered sixty six million and then they harump and say, Oh, these, you know, basically these aren't our kids, these are Cleveland's kids, which is right. creating this phony, ridiculous city versus the county division that we never saw in the old former county government. It's really worrisome that this county council has become so ridiculously parochial and wasteful of dollars. So does it sound like the state saw what was going on here and that's how uh, uh, the possibility of a state grant comes together? I mean, let's face it, Mike DeWine professes to be the governor for the children. Yes, that's true. And and from what we understand behind the scenes, Mike DeWine is very sympathetic to what's happening here in Cleveland. Uh, and I think he is you know, I know that Say Yes is working with Governor DeWine's office to amend the guidelines for how those federal dollars that pass through the state can be used. I mean, the current guidelines only allow them to be spent on kids in foster care, but with a policy change at the state level, Say Yes could use them for these services that prevent kids from entering foster care. So they're working on that. And, um, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure if it was the state that, that you know, kind of offered up this $1.5 million opportunity. We'd also heard that J Mayor Justin Bibb was instrumental in moving this along or, or finding a way forward. So we're still trying to connect with, with him to find out what role he might have played. But importantly, the county must decide what role to play in the future of this program for its long-term sustainability. And we're we're waiting to hear from Chris Ronane on his plans for that 
his budgeting process is about to begin, and, and this should be top of mind right now. Maybe they can all meet at the Parma Clubhouse at the golf course <laughs> and make up their minds on how to do that. You're I listening know. to Today in Ohio. How did Wadsworth become the latest site of the virulent culture wars over the weekend, and why were two people there arrested? Lisa, this became national news. Yeah, a lot of people showed up to protest this event. It was at Memorial Park in downtown Wadsworth. It was called the Rock and Roll Humanist Drag Queen Story Hour. And it was disrupted by, like I said, almost 300 people who were white supremacists. Obviously, they were shouting slurs. They were waving swastika flags. They were doing the Nazi salute. Um, there were two people arrested, 22-year-old Juan Collado of Cleveland and 45-year-old Jason McKenna of Valley. City. They were charged with disorderly conduct. There was some video footage that seemed to indicate that McKenna might have had a gun, but it could have been pepper spray. Um, event organizer Aaron Reed says that they were trying to raise money for survivors of the Club Q shooting in Colorado last November and for the B. Riley House, which is a Cleveland substance abuse treatment center for LGBTQ. Um, Reed said, drag queens are not necessarily LGBTQ, but the Nazis don't know that. We're just a symbol of queer folk to them, which is why they came out. Now, the mayor of Wadsworth probably stirred the pot a little bit. He wrote a letter March 5th to residents. Uh, uh, he's the council president, Bob Thurber of the Wadsworth City Council. He said, we had no choice but to let the event take place, but the city does not condone their behavior. And later he said they will consider a law to ban adult-oriented events on city property where minors are present. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna ban that. Meanwhile, we had people doing Heil Hitler chants. I mean, it's a it's this like uh, in Mel Brooks movies from the nineteen seventies. It's cartoonish in the way these guys are pretending to be Nazis. But it boggles the mind, and they're all wearing masks, so nobody can identify who they are. But you have a drag show going on, a a First Amendment right to do it, and people you know, with, with swastikas and, and saying Heil Hitler. Bizarre. And so many people showing up to kind of a small Ohio town. I mean, that's, that's frightening to me. And it's interesting, you know, there were no reports on whether, you know, cause you can openly carry a gun in Ohio. I didn't hear any reports of them brandishing or, or wearing guns, but you know, this is just a match. This is like a bomb waiting to go off. I know, but they're, they're out professing to be Nazis. I it's know. like the, one of the worst things you can be in the history of the planet. And they're out celebrating it and acting like they're, they're out there for a righteous cause. It's bizarre. And as the police said, these are mostly people from out of town. They are not residents. They just seized upon Wadsworth to do their, their nonsense. It's, it's just strange. And I have a feeling this is what the 2024 presidential race will bring a lot out. Uh, there's already examinations that this sphere and the school will be the place where Ron DeSantis and company try to make their bones by getting rage going with their followers. Very sad. It's today in Ohio. How did a judge's bonehead mistake result in a mistrial in a notorious torture killing that took place in East Cleveland? Laura? Well, they sent it to just one side, the, the communication, uh, one side of the case. And we're talking about three people accused of kidnapping, torturing, and killing Alicia Pointer in East Cleveland in November 2021. 
This is Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court Judge John J. Russo. He wrote in his journal entry that a member of his staff accidentally sent this communication that contained procedural information only to the prosecutors, not the defense attorneys who represent the three defendants, Hakeem Ali Shomo, Anthony Bryant, and Brittany Smith. And state rules say how courts operate. They bar judges from communicating with just one party in the case. That's a legal term known as ex parte communication. So it's a mistrial. He recused himself from continuing to oversee the case, and it was assigned to Judge Michael Russo. Yeah, we don't know what the communication was. They didn't tell us the specifics. It doesn't sound like it was anything substantive. But think about this. For, For what appears to be a fairly minor technical mistake, he recuses himself and a Supreme Court Justice, Pat DeWine, did not recuse himself from a case involving his father. The, the, the diversion of ethics among judges is never more illustrative than when you see something like this. He did the right thing. Bonehead right. mistake. They did the right thing. It's too bad that justice gets delayed. This was a horrible, horrible case. Yeah, the prosecutor said this group of um, conspired to kidnap Pointer and use her as ransom to find her boyfriend, who the group expects suspected was tied to a fatal shooting of one of their brothers. Three people are already pleaded guilty to reduce charges and expected to testify. They were on the third day of this trial. So I expect, you know, they'll regroup and try this trio again, but you're right. But you're right. He had to step back because otherwise there's a lot of grounds for appeal right there. Right. I mean, this is Fairly cut right, and dry. Right. He, he did the right thing. I mean, we all make mistakes. You know, we all make bonehead mistakes. It's how you react to them. It's how you deal with them. And he did exactly the right thing to move forward and make sure justice gets served, even if it's delayed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How has education changed as a result of the pandemic? Layla, this is one of the broader thought, big thought stories in Cleveland's Promise series, less of the anecdotal examinations of how the kids are doing. Yeah. Hannah Drown did this as a special installment of our Cleveland's Promise uh, series. So so it's been three years since that terrible day when the world went on lockdown and schools shut for the remainder of the school year to prevent COVID transmission. And and Hannah turned to the teachers that she has come to know so well at Elmira Elementary School on, on the west side of Cleveland to, to gather their reflections on how education has changed on account of the pandemic and, and what parts of the achievement gap persist all this time later after that long stretch out of the classroom because, of course, Cleveland schools spent more time in remote learning than most Ohio districts. Hannah cites this 2022 report released by the Cleveland Foundation that says overall, students lost between three and 14 months of learning during the pandemic with the greatest impact on kids of color and those living in poverty. And another report says that disadvantaged and marginalized communities are still several years away from making a full academic recovery from the pandemic. On the ground at Elmira, that really plays out. Miss Miss Gina Hakadakis, who is an intervention specialist working with fourth and fifth graders with special learning needs, told Hannah that since coming back to the classroom, she's found herself really broadening the scope of the kids that she works with. So now she's she's working with a lot of kids who have not been identified as having learning disabilities or special needs, but they need the help to catch up to grade level. And she lamented the the time lost with that one-on-one instruction in reading specifically while the kids were still in first or second grade learning those foundations of, of reading. Miss Mary Hanel, who teaches fifth grade, 
echoed a lot of that. She told Hannah that she has had to really slow down her pace with many kids in, in English language arts because of how much time they missed. And because during the pandemic, the state halted its third grade reading guarantee, which requires a certain level of reading aptitude before a kid can go on to fourth grade. It's It's been restored for the school year, but a lot of kids were promoted to the next grade before they became proficient enough at reading. And it's just compounding year after year, that deficiency. And then Mr. John Whelan, who's a fifth grade math teacher, told Hannah that he sees the biggest gap for his kids in the basics of multiplication, which is really the foundation for so much of the higher level math that they're supposed to be doing in fifth grade. Of course, multiplication was taught during that pandemic lockdown for for a lot of these kids. And He's, he has been using technology to overcome that. Particularly, he uses an online program that tracks which questions kids get wrong or right on a test to develop personalized data-driven coursework. So clearly, it really remains a mighty, mighty struggle for both teachers and students. Yeah, and you wonder how far we have to get down the road to, to have a full view in the rearview mirror. We're still so close to it that it's hard to really understand what we what was wrought by all of this we're getting clear and clear signals and obviously education suffered during the the time people were at home but i just don't feel like we're far enough along yet to understand the full ramifications i was so broad you know we're talking about academics but in your story Layla, i really liked how the teacher was talking about how they they have a harder time interacting with each other and mm-hmm. with their teachers that, and I wonder, is that everybody, you know, like we, we lost this ability to get along with people who don't agree with us. And so they're seeing more fights, verbal and physical in school. Yeah. You know, Miss Hanel pointed out that a lot of kids are also fighting accountability in their classwork. And, and also they're lacking those interpersonal skills because they missed out on all of that, all of that socialization during those formative years. And, you know, this really resonated with me. I have a third grader whose kindergarten year was disrupted three years ago. And of course, kindergarten is the year where you learn how to be a student, how to get along in that classroom setting and when to socialize and when to focus on work. But when we were all thrust into e-learning, especially in those early months at the end of 2020 school year, remember, Laura, everything mm-hmm. was so haphazard and chaotic. Oh, yeah, there was no plan because there they was hadn't no plan. planned for it. So I there know, was no course. Zoom. And there was just like, hey, do an assignment. I know. And and the motto kind of became for parents, just do the best you can to get through this. Yeah. It was already so stressful. So there was a sense that all these assignments they were given to do at home on their Chromebooks were kind of optional. And if life was too stressful, never mind, just skip it. I mean, that was how everyone was approaching it. Right. And even when they were remote learning with their teachers over Zoom, sometimes my my kid, who was the, by then a first grader, would get so frustrated, she would just slam her Chromebook shut and refuse to log back on. So when the kids did return full time, it took at least a year and a half for my kid to develop a real work ethic and understand that actually school isn't optional. You do have to commit to it and take it seriously. I cannot imagine how difficult that transition must have been for students who were out of the classroom even longer Mm -hmm. than our district was. And think about how fraught that time period was. We're not just dealing with a pandemic, right? We're dealing with the entire world shifting and, and, a lot of different movements colliding and to be a kid and to not have the stability of school and everybody's on edge and everybody's super anxious and you never know when the next wave is coming. We talked just a minute ago about early childhood education and, and the importance of brain development. Like this is hard on kids. Their right. brains 
you know, we're I, probably long-term affected by it. I would suggest another reason that the kids are caustic with each other is because we live in a world now yes. where Fox News profits off of getting people angry. They're surrounded by hate. Tucker Carlson wants them to be enraged. So if you're surrounded by rage, you might practice rage. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We are not getting through our story list today, but we do want to get to one more, Lisa. Ohio Senate President Matt Huffman made a rare trip to Cleveland Monday to talk with some ministers. What did they want to talk about and what was the reception? Yeah, they wanted to talk about voter registration laws and, and crime. Uh, Matt Huffman, along with his fellow Senator Nikki J. Antonio, the Democrat from Lakewood, met with pastors in Cleveland to talk about community concerns. Pastor Anthony Small with Starlight Missionary Baptist Church said, you know, voter registration laws are hurting his elderly congregants because they can't get a driver's license. It's hard for them. You know, they don't drive anymore. And he pleaded with them, don't try to fix a system that isn't broken. Huffman and Antonio both agreed to that and said they would look into voter reforms. Bishop Eugene Ward with the Greater Love Missionary Baptist Church says we need to address crime in Cleveland by dealing with the continuous disparities. And he says that religious, educational, and legal communities must work together to solve crime problems. And Senator Antonio chimed in and said that expanded gun laws have contributed to crime and youth violence, but yet Democrats can't seem to get any common sense rules passed the legislature. Look, I got to give Huffman credit for doing this. Yeah. We often feel in the urban areas that they don't care about us at all. And for him to actually come up and spend time listening, whether any good comes of it, who knows, but it's a good sign that he at least took the trouble to have the meeting, no? And yes, I, I think it's great that they reached out and they seem to be pretty amenable to what the what the ministers were saying. And I think the fact that they, I don't know that they may not have realized how their elderly voter base is being affected by some of these registration laws. Yeah, I, I, I was shocked. I mean, when Laura sent me the press release, I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, Matt Huffman doesn't usually talk to people in Cleveland, so good for him for doing it, and maybe it will change his thinking just a little bit as he approaches his job. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for the Tuesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Everybody, enjoy some pie. We'll be back on Wednesday. Wednesday.